You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This episode features discussions of what happens when you sneeze in space, how electricity and magnetism are related, how a space station works, and other topics in physics and astronomy. Let's have a listen. What happens when you sneeze in space or turn on a flashlight in space? Okay, let's talk about both of these. So first thing is, uh, let's define sneeze where. Sneeze inside your spacesuit, sneeze inside the International Space Station, or sneeze uh, directly into space. Let's hope it wasn't directly into space because uh, then you would be very cold, very much without air, and in very bad shape. But I think maybe what you were suggesting, uh, let's talk about sneezing inside the International Space Station. Okay, so, so one feature of being in the ISS is that you're weightless. What does it mean to be weightless? So it means things don't fall to the floor. Normally when we're on the Earth, gravity makes things fall towards the center of the Earth. But when you're in the space station, the space station is orbiting the Earth. And so it's in a sense, it's falling. And if you're inside the space station, you're just falling at the same rate as the space station. So relative to the space station, you're weightless. There's nothing pulling you down to the bottom of the space station, so to speak, because it's, it's falling and you're falling with it. So for example, if you are in an elevator in a tall building and the elevator is accelerating downwards, you will feel not quite weightless, but you'll feel uh, like you have less weight because the elevator is kind of, in, in the bad case, the elevator might be just falling, uh, completely falling as if you'd just dropped the elevator. If you were in an elevator that was just falling, which wouldn't be a good, good place to be, then you would be weightless relative to the elevator and you would, it would, you'd be just sort of floating around in the, in the elevator. But in something like the space station, it's kind of, as it goes around its orbit, what the orbit is, is it's kind of, the space station is always falling towards the Earth, but by the time it would have fallen onto the Earth, it's already around the side of the Earth, and so it just goes around in its orbit. And so relative to that, you inside the space station will just be floating around, not being pulled to the floor, so to speak. Okay, so let's say you sneeze. Well, then what you're doing is you're taking... Uh, you're essentially, you could either sneeze or you could have a ball and you throw the ball. It's kind of the same physics that's going to happen. The, um, what's happening is there is a, uh, uh, this idea of conservation of momentum. That is, when you, if, if you throw the ball, you are generating, you're making that ball have momentum going in a certain direction. And because of this principle of conservation of momentum, it will make you go in the opposite direction. So it's like, it's, it's Newton's third law. You can, you can describe it in a variety of ways. It's just a fact that's known about physics um, that when there is, um, uh, if you sort of are generating, if you throw something in one direction, you will recoil in the other direction. Uh, so as to keep the, the total momentum, uh, momentum is, is basically the mass, it's, it's officially, in the simple case, at least, it's mass multiplied by velocity. Um, in order to keep that constant, um, if you push something one way, 
the, the thing that pushes it goes the other way. So if you were to sneeze, then you would be uh, you would be pushed the other way. Now, the amount you're pushed the other way, momentum is mass times velocity. And so uh, your sneeze isn't a large amount of mass. It has a certain velocity. You're pushing your, your sneeze out with a, at a certain speed. Um, but it has a certain mass. It'll be quite small compared to your mass. So that means that because what's being conserved is mass times velocity, the math says that that if, if the mass of the sneeze is, let's say, a gram, and let's say your mass is, I don't know, 200, is 100 kilograms, that means that you weigh um, 100,000 times as much as your sneeze. And so the, to conserve this mass times velocity quantity, that means you'll be pushed backwards a very small amount relative to uh, by, by ejecting that, that gram of, of sneeze. Okay, so it's actually the same kind of deal with a flashlight. A flashlight is the, the, the bulb in your flashlight is producing light. Light is a stream of photons. And photons, like your sneeze, has a certain, have a certain amount of momentum. The amount of momentum that photons have is quite small, um, but it is nevertheless not zero. And that means that in principle, you switch on your flashlight and it's starting and it has a mirror that's making all of the, all of the photons be, be shone out forward, so to speak, because that's what that parabolic mirror that you'll see in a flashlight is doing. The, the, the bulb might be having photons go in all directions, but the mirror is reflecting them so that they're all going forwards. So that means that the momentum of the light, the momentum of the photons is all pointing in the forward direction. And so that will mean that there's a recoil of the flashlight by a very, very, very small amount backwards. Now, that, that very small amount of, of recoil, you can actually use that because this idea that there's momentum associated with light, there are places where you can use it. So actually, it was, it was recently done to deploy a solar sail, a giant sheet of, I think, mylar, a giant sheet of reflective material, very light sheet of reflective material in space. Um, you, uh, you, you, you unfurl this thing, and then you shine light at it. Or, for example, you use light from the sun, um, but you might shine an intense laser light at it, or you might use light from the sun. Either way, there'll be a small amount of pressure. If the, if the light from the sun, for example, is hitting the sail in that direction, the sail will be pushed a small amount uh, uh, along by that, by that um, momentum of the light hitting it. And actually, this is the sort of an idea. It's been in science fiction a lot, and a little bit of science fact now, of making solar sails. Um, where you could, for example, you know, tack out into the, or you could, you could sail out into the outer solar system, just pushed by the uh, what's called radiation pressure, the uh, the, um, the the pressure of uh, of photons from the sun hitting your your sail. Now the problem is the sun is not very bright. Uh, you know, for us it's still a reasonable, uh, you know, it, it subtends a reasonable angle in the sky. Um, you know, it's it's as big as our thumb or something. If you hold it out, I think that's roughly right. Um, if you were on even Mars, for example, um, the uh, the sun is a is much smaller. Um, and as you go further out, the uh, the uh, the um, the sun ends up looking like just a, a dot of light, like another star, um, and uh, although somewhat more intense for anything in our solar system. And so this idea that you can use kind of light pressure from the sun looks a little bit less plausible as you go further out from the sun. Do scientists always use metric units? Um, 
You know, uh, I was talking earlier about the Babylonians from 4,000 years ago. They were the first folks who, that we know of who sort of systematized things. And you know, before that time, there were, and part of the reason they did that systematization is because they were building cities. And as soon as you have a city, you need to be able to do things like say, you know, what's the area of this piece of land and how does it compare to that? And you need to have money where you're counting things. You need to say this amount of uh, barley is cost this amount and this, you know, how big a volume is of barley do we have? Well, in the past, sort of every city would have its own system of units. And even, even 150 years ago, there were different units. You know, there was the, um, I don't know, the, you know, the Berlin system of units, the London system of units. And you see that particularly with amounts of mass and volumes of things. And even there were different units for, you know, a mass of bananas versus a mass of uh, grapes versus whatever else. Each different thing had its own units and each different city would have its own system of units. It's a little bit like in today's world with money, different countries have different currencies. You can convert between them, the, the, those conversions in the case of money, because it's a slightly more complicated kind of thing, those conversions float and change. In the case of, I have this load of bananas, it better be the case that that load, and, and I shouldn't use the word bananas because it really plays to my British accent and sounds weird and American, but let's say oranges, um, apples. Um, you know, we have this load of apples and um, the, uh, uh, and it better be the case that that load of apples that weighs, uh, you know, 25 London pounds, and it weighs 23 Berlin pounds, and so on. Um, that's very confusing, because you have to say, you know, London pounds, Berlin pounds, and so on. Anyway, the, the first, uh, first time any of that stuff was systematized that we know of was by the Babylonians. But then over the course of time, you know, different places systematized differently. And uh, there was the, the so-called imperial system of units, uh, the system of units that was uh, sort of uh, promoted by the British Empire was the system of units that we have of miles, inches, feet. I remember when I was a kid, um, the, uh, um, when I was a kid, the, the, uh, I grew up in England, and uh, one of the things, you know, England doesn't have a constitution like the US Constitution or something. They did have a thing called Magna Carta, which was drawn up by a chap called King John when he was um, uh, trying to get his barons to, to, uh, to kind of uh, be happy and let him go on being king. Um, he, in, he had this thing called Magna Carta, which was the sort of the, the, the rule, the laws of the land or something. And one of the things that always confused me when I was a kid, I knew one of the provisions of Magna Carta is that an inch would be the length of the king's thumb. And I always was very confused by that because it was like, well, what if there's a different king? What if, um, you know, how does it, um, well, of course, actually, King John probably had a much smaller thumb than our modern inch. So it was a, it was a, it was a, a fictional king's thumb. But nevertheless, it was, um, that was kind of a, an attempt to standardize units in England with the, an inch is the length of the king's thumb. Okay, but so the system of units that was used, used in, the, in the countries that were in the British Empire, uh, which included the US back a long time ago, um, were the imperial system of units, which were miles, feet, pounds, all those kinds of things. The, um, uh, there was an attempt, so in, in France, uh, when Napoleon was in power in France around 1800, the, um, uh, he 
decided to commission a new system of units, uh, the so-called metric system of units. And so he tried to invent a, um, a sort of a perfect system of units. And his approach was, um, for example, the meter was defined relative to the, the, the earth. And a meter, I think, is if you take the... Um, uh, if you take the big, the great circle that goes through Paris and goes around the Earth, through the North Pole and the South Pole and through Paris, I think a meter, if I'm not mistaken, is one millionth of the circumference of that circle, if, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken. I might, might have that off by a little bit. Um, but so that was the definition of a meter that Napoleon made, and that was the metric system um, that it was invented by Napoleon. Um, and the metric system had a lot of good features. For example, everything was base 10. Um, and, you know, it was uh, in the British system. Okay, in the British system, there were a uh, British system of units, you know, there are 12 inches in a foot, three feet in a yard, 1760 yards in a mile. It's a, a total mess of different kinds of numbers. The Babylonians often used base 60. For some reason, in in the British imperial system, um, there were these different factors. You know, even money used to work that way. When I was a kid in England in the 1960s, um, money worked this way. There were pennies, the equivalent of cents in Amer American cents, pennies, um, and there were uh, um, 12, my gosh, am I forgetting this? There were 12 pennies in a shilling and 20 shillings in a pound. Okay, so it was a non-base uh, non 10 system of units. A non, um, and I used to say, actually, I remember telling some teacher of mine when I was about six or something years old, I said, this is really stupid. There's no reason to do it this way. You could perfectly well have money work with, uh, you know, with multiples of 10. And this teacher said, no, 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 it's been that way for a thousand years. It's going to be that way forever. And I was like, really? And it turned out just two years later, uh, Britain announced that it was going to decimalize. It was going to turn its money into being base 10 money. That eventually happened in 1970. It was actually interesting. I mean, this is neither here nor there, but it might be amusing for people. The, um, uh, what, what happens when you do something like change the money from being uh, non-decimal, not based on, on tens, to being decimal? And I remember they were running these television programs about decimalization where they were trying to, for about a year beforehand, explaining to people, this is how it will work. And they were very worried about people are going to be confused, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was this actual day when the non-decimal money went out of circulation, the decimal money came into circulation. And it was kind of cool because, you know, you, 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 you got given this old money and you get back the new money. And the thing which was most notable to me was people were not confused. People were very unconfused very quickly. Um, which was, wasn't necessarily, I wouldn't necessarily have expected it to work that way. I thought, you know, people might have been confused for a long time, but they weren't. It was, it was very, very fast. But um, uh, in, um, uh, so in the system of units, the imperial system of units that's used in the US, in England, um, the, uh, it's not decimal, it's not, uh, it is for money now, but, but um, it's not decimal for things like lengths and, um, um, and uh, you know, um, uh, and masses, weights, and so on. Um, and that's, uh, that's awfully inconvenient um, when you're doing sort of mathematical type calculations. I, I might say the following. The, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the decimalization of English currency, it happened in 1970. 
I actually mentioned earlier in this, in this uh, discussion that calculators came in roughly in 1970. And I actually believe that if calculators, had, if, 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 if Britain had delayed decimalizing money for even another two or three years, it would never have been decimalized because doing calculations with non-decimal money is a big nuisance, big mess. It's, um, but if you'd had calculators to do it, everybody would have been able to do it easily. And so I suspect that there wouldn't have been any motivation to decimalize the money because the real reason to decimalize was to make it easier to do the calculations. So the, the original question here was, do scientists always use metric units? The answer is uh, pretty much yes. I mean, there are some other kinds of units used in some areas of science, but in most areas of science, it's convenient to use decimal units. Um, areas where it isn't in astrophysics, sometimes there are units like light years and parsecs that are used, which aren't, um, aren't uh, well, aren't really decimal in that, in that, they're not part of the standard unit system. I mean, the thing to understand is that, that all the units for different kinds of things, you know, the units of volume, the units of, there are a certain number of basic units that you have to specify. And so, in fact, in the, um, in the standard way it's done, it's um, the meter, the kilogram, and the second. The units of mass, length, and time are sort of the most fundamental units. Strangely, there are a few other fundamental units, the unit of amount of substance, number of atoms in a, a mole, uh, unit of luminous intensity. There are all sorts of arguments now about whether angles should be fundamental units. But fundamentally, the, the three units that are, the three kinds of units that are, that are really fundamentally used are mass, length, and time. And you can derive other things like volume is, is uh, length times length times length, length cubed, that's the units of volume and so on. Um, so you can derive other units, but but in the, the sort of the most basic units that you have to have are a unit of length, a unit of mass, a unit of time. If you if you get into fancy, well, no, let me not go there. In 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 fundamental physics, there's some new thinking about how that might work. But um, uh, I just my my final parting thing here is like, how do we measure in modern times? You know, back in the days of Magna Carta, we measured length in terms of supposedly in England the length of the king's thumb. Um, how do we measure length, mass, time now? They're all actually measured um, in terms of uh, features of atoms. Until very recently, until just a couple of years ago, the way that kilograms were ultimately measured is using a particular metal kilogram that was sitting in a vault in Paris, I believe. That was the kilogram, the standard kilogram, and there were copies of it in different places. And if you wanted to know absolutely for sure that you have exactly one kilogram of mass, you could in principle go and take that thing out of the vault in Paris and find out if it was the same mass as the thing you had. Um, I think it got taken out of its vault once a decade or something, and it had to be very carefully controlled. But anyway, it's much better to measure everything in terms of properties of atoms, and that's what is now being done everything, mass, length, and time are all measured in terms of properties of atoms. Um, and uh, well, properties of atoms together with the speed of light. Um, and the reason that's a good thing is because every, let's say, atom of cesium or atom that happens to be one that's used, but every atom of carbon or whatever, every single atom of carbon is exactly the same. It's a remarkable feature of physics that you know, it's not the case if you have a big lump of metal, there are lots of different lumps of metal we could make, but every single carbon atom that exists in the universe is essentially the same. 
And that means that if we use it as our way to make measurements of things, like we use it as our unit of mass, for example, it's this number of carbon atoms or something, it's not quite how it works, but let's say it was that, um, then uh, we can be sure that wherever we make this measurement, it will always be the same. And as I'm saying that, I'm realizing that I really should be qualifying that in terms of things about the effects of gravity and general relativity and all kinds of fancy things like that, which we're not going to talk about here now. What's the um, relationship between electricity and magnetism? Okay, this is something that was discovered uh, in the 1800s. And um, the, uh, I can tell you sort of the, the, main, um, the main story here. So electricity is uh, in something like a wire, is a flow of electrons. So electrons are little particles that are what are inside atoms but electrons are also what make electricity. Electricity is made of a, uh, large numbers of electrons. Each electron has a little amount of electric charge, and an electric current is the flow of electrons. So it's like you have all these electrons, and, if they're, and they're moving down a wire, and that motion of charge from one place to another is electric current. And so what one usually talk, think, when one talks about electricity, one's usually talking about this the flow of electrons, the flow of these, of these electric charges, for example, down a wire. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the basic idea of what electricity is. What is magnetism? Well, magnetism, so you might say, uh, so magnetism is, is what, for example, um, you get in a magnet, um, and uh, in a magnet, what's, what's what one way to get, uh, magnetism is to have electricity. Uh, for example, if you have an electric current that's going around in a circle, then it, uh, the, the, it's just a fact about physics that an electric current going around in a circle produces a magnetic field, produces magnetism, where the, the, the magnetism is kind of um, uh, corresponds to something where, okay, so uh, where the magnetism is, if, if the electric current is going around in that circle there, there's a magnetic field that goes up this way. How do you notice a magnetic field? If you get, for example, iron filings, just iron ground up into little powder, and you put them around a magnet, then they will arrange themselves in the magnetic field lines, and they'll look like a thing where, where there's the if the magnet is here, then the, the field lines will come out and go around like that. So the magnets, so uh, for example, a, a magnet has a North Pole and a South Pole. Um, let's say they're just called that because the Earth has a magnetic field. The Earth is like a giant magnet. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, the, there are these lines of magnetic force that go from uh, North Pole to South Pole, for example. So you might ask the question, uh, one question you might ask is, well, electrons, are the sort of smallest components of electricity. What are the smallest components of magnetism? So electrons uh, have an electric charge. And you might say, well, is there a magnetic charge that's like electric charge that sort of makes magnetism? The answer is no, doesn't appear to be the case in our universe. There is a theoretical kind of particle called a magnetic monopole, which would be the magnetic analog of an electron it will be something that makes magnetic field like an electron makes electric field. It will be something that has a magnetic charge like an electron has an electric charge. So far as we know, magnetic monopoles do not exist.
the laws of physics don't allow magnetic monopoles to exist. And when you have a magnet, it always has like a North Pole and a South Pole. It's like if you had, um, uh, if you have electricity, you could have something where the, it always would have a, a positive charge at one end, a negative charge at the other end. You, you can never kind of saw it in the, it, for electricity, you can kind of saw it in the middle and you can separate off. This is the positive charge, this is the negative charge. For magnetism, that isn't possible. You can't sort of saw off the North Pole end of a magnet and have it be its own separate magnetic monopole. They always come in pairs. So at least that's what seems to be the case in our universe. Um, it, uh, so, the, um, so what is magnetism? Uh, we can think of both electricity and magnetism as being features of this thing that's called the electromagnetic field. It doesn't really help very much to say that because that's just saying there's this thing that's a combination of electricity and magnetism. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that it's just, we just know about physics that um, the, uh, that these, this field exists. And, and what is true about it is when there's a moving electric, uh, uh, when there's a moving, um, when there's an electric current and um, that is like going around in a circle, for example, it makes a magnetic field. Um, when there's a changing um, electric field, it makes a magnetic field. It's also true that when there's a changing magnetic field, it makes an electric field. Um, and uh, that, that fact about when there's a change in one of these fields, it makes the other one, that's what allows you to have electromagnetic waves of which light or radio waves are, are two examples. The main thing to remember is uh, sort of an electric current, for example, going in a circle makes a magnetic field. Actually, an electric current, even in a wire, just going in one line, makes a moving electric charge or an electric current makes a magnetic field. Um, and that's the way magnetic fields get made. Um, uh, electric current is just the motion of, of, of electric charges. Um, there aren't magnetic charges so far as we know. So magnetism works a little bit differently. Why is the sky blue? Okay. Um, well, let, let's see if we can figure out a little bit about that from just simple sort of thinking. So here are two facts we know. The sky looks blue and the sun at sunset or sunrise looks red. So normally the sun looks white. Um, we, white light is made of a combination of sort of all the colors of the rainbow, going all the way from red through yellow, um, green, blue, and, and then eventually to blue, okay? So red is at one end, blue is at the other end of the rainbow and of the spectrum. Um, those, when we say the, those different colors are at different ends, um, what's happening is uh, light is made from, uh, we can think of it as being made from a stream of photons. And each of those photons, either a stream of photons or an electromagnetic wave of the kind I was talking about. And what happens is blue light, each electron has a slightly higher energy than in red light. So each electron, they, they go at the same speed, they go at the speed of light, but um, the electrons can have different energies and that means when, when the electron, sorry, photons can have different energies. And that means, for example, when they uh, go, when they um, interact with a camera or something like that, they can, well, actually, I'm, I'm um, the, uh, um, I'm cheating a little bit because that's not actually how it works. But I, I was going to say that um, the photon 
can cause a little bit, uh, this, is, this is roughly true. Uh, the photon, the higher the energy of the photon, the, the larger amount of electricity it will produce when there's, a, uh, when there's a detector like the retina in your eye or the, um, uh, the detector in, in, a, in a webcam or something. The, the, roughly, the higher the energy of the photon, the larger the electricity it will produce. Um, the, uh, uh, so, okay, so every photon of light has a certain energy. The blue light has a slightly higher energy than the red light, okay? So, next, we, let's look at what happens uh, from the sun. The sun is roughly white. It has a mixture of all these different colors. It has red photon, it has photons of red light, it has photons of blue light. They're all coming uh, to us from the sun. Okay, so now let's, let's ask the question, uh, in order for the photons to get to us, to get to our eyes from the sun, they have to go through the Earth's atmosphere. They have to go through the 50 miles or so of air that um, exists as the atmosphere around the Earth, okay? So what happens when the, when the photons go through the air? Well, what happens is, Every so often, one of those photons will hit a molecule of air, a, hydrogen a nitrogen molecule, an oxygen molecule, will hit one of those molecules, and it will be scattered in some other direction. So what happens is the, the photon comes in, and the photon just hits one of those molecules, and it will be made just like a, a billiard ball or something, bouncing off something. It will bounce and go in a different direction. Okay, so let's say we're looking at, um, at the sun, and we're seeing it in the sky. When we see it, there'll be a certain distance of air that is between us and the sun. So all the photons that are coming from the sun go through that distance of air. And so some, uh, there'll be red photons, blue photons, etc. they all come to us. Okay, at sunrise, for example, the sun is going through a, a larger length of air than it is when the sun is high in the sky because we're looking at it through, we're, we're kind of looking at it like the atmosphere is going around the earth and we're looking further through the atmosphere when it's at sunrise than if we're just looking straight up and going sort of straight out of the atmosphere. We're looking kind of along the, along the surface of the earth, which means we're looking through more atmosphere there. Okay, so what's happening then? The light from the sun has to come to us through a larger amount of air. And when that's, uh, so that means that that light, the photons that are in that light have more chance to hit molecules in the air because there's more air that they're going to go through. And so that, um, so that, that means that, that um, uh, there's, there's more chance for those molecules to be scattered, that is to hit um, a molecule of air and to be pushed off in another direction. Okay, so next fact is that um, blue light, higher energy photons have a somewhat larger chance of being scattered by air molecules. And um, that is not, well, that's a phenomenon, it's called Rayleigh scattering. And I could probably explain to you why that happens, but let's just for now, let's just take that as a, as, as a, as a, as a fact, that if you're a, a, a blue photon, if you're a photon of blue light, which means slightly higher energy photon, then there's a higher chance that you are scattered in a different direction by hitting a molecule in the air. Okay, so then light from the sun, is coming to us uh, you know, at sunrise, all this white light, mixture of red and blue photons and so on is coming, coming to us, but more blue photons are being scattered away. And so that means the ones that actually make it to our eyes 
are more likely to be red photons. And that's why the sun looks redder um, at sunrise and sunset. It's going through more air. There's more chance for the blue photons to be scattered away so we don't see them. And so instead, we're just seeing the red photons. Okay, so given this explanation, uh, you can perhaps guess why the sky might be blue because there's light coming from the sun. And even when the sun is high in the sky, there's still every photon that has to come from the sun has to come to us, uh, has to go through the air. And what's happening is the blue photons are being more likely to be scattered off in different directions and to essentially uh, be ones where we'll, we'll, they'll be scattered as they come in from the sun. Then they'll be, let's say, scattered again from another uh, molecule there, and then they'll get to our eyes. And the blueness of the sky comes from the fact that there are photons that are coming from the sun and they're scattered out of the way into a different part of the sky and then they come to our eyes. And the ones where that happens more are the blue photons. So that's why the, the, the sky looks blue is because that's photons coming from the sun. The red photons have less chance to be scattered. So they're more likely to just go straight ahead and not get scattered. And so we just see them as part of the, of the whiteness of the sun unless they're going through a big column of air as they do at sunrise or sunset. And then, they, then it will be the, the red ones that are more likely to survive. So the sun will look red, but the things that aren't the sun, that are just coming to, that are light, that can't come directly from the sun, but gets scattered out of the way by molecules in the air, then comes to us and then comes to our eyes. That's, that's why the sky looks, looks blue. Now, if you go up in a, uh, if you go high enough up, the sky will stop looking blue because there isn't enough uh, there isn't enough air that the photons have to come through that there's significant scattering. So if you, for example, I remember once I went on the Concorde supersonic plane, which flew at, what was it, 50,000 feet maybe? Um, so a typical plane flies at 35,000 feet or so. Maybe a, a small plane might fly a little bit higher than that. Um, but from the Concorde, one of the cool things was that it was daytime flight, but the sky was black. And the sky was black because there wasn't enough air above one so that uh, there were so that the the photons from the sun could be scattered off in different directions and the blue ones uh, more than the others and then scatter back to us and, and make the sky uh, seem to be blue. So that's the story. Um, why really scattering preferentially scatters blue light? Maybe we can talk about that another time. Um, and uh, that's that's the answer to that. How does a space station work? Well, there's several different levels of work. So right now, there's only one space station that is actively in orbit around the Earth, the International Space Station. Um, it's existed for, I don't know how long, 25 years maybe? Um, well, the first thing is it's in orbit around the Earth. So that means that the Earth's gravity is pulling it in but it's going fast enough, about 17,000 miles an hour, that by the time it would have been pulled in by Earth's gravity, it's already moved far enough that it's sort of, it's sort of gone to the, to the edge of the Earth. So if it starts at the top here, it's kind of moving fast enough in this direction that by the time it's pulled down by Earth's gravity, it's just pulled and it's, it's gone to the other, it's gone around to the side of the Earth. And so it, it just keeps going in an orbit around, around the Earth. Inside the space station, the, um, uh, so space is a vacuum, means it doesn't have any, any air in it. There are no air molecules or very, very few air molecules. There's probably, around where the space station is, I would guess 
that there are, I'm going to make a guess, I'm not completely certain, but I'm going to guess that they're on the order of a, um, maybe one air molecule in every cubic centimeter. Whereas on, um, on uh, normally, um, let's think how many are there? Well, there's um, maybe a billion trillion molecules normally for us when we're breathing air um, in, in that, um, in that uh, in that uh, size of of, uh, of thing, but but in space, um, in space there aren't any any molecules of, of air or anything. It's it's almost a perfect vacuum. So in order to be able to live on the space station, you have to um, there has to be there has to be air there, and and all it is is it's an enclosed box, so to speak, an enclosed system that keeps the air inside. Now again, it's a little complicated because the air that um, uh, the air that we breathe out, um, we, we breathe in, so the, the atmosphere is about 78% nitrogen, 20% oxygen, um, and the oxygen is what we use in our lungs to, um, uh, that, that's what our respiration is, is making use of. So when we breathe in, we are, uh, oxygen is getting into our blood and that's, that's what allows our whole uh, uh, body to work. Um, when we breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide, um, and uh, the um, uh, and in this in, on in, on the Earth, there's a big sort of cycle where plants effectively breathe in carbon dioxide and produce oxygen, and there's a sort of big cycle that takes place where we are exchanging where uh, that that gives us enough oxygen to breathe. On the space station, you have to have a similar kind of cycle. Um, and you have to have uh, you use um, uh, you're not <coughs> you're not using plants you're using chemistry to to um, uh, to make that cycle work. But you have to um, you have to have such a cycle because you don't you're not supplying sort of tanks of oxygen. The you know you breathe in the oxygen you breathe out carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is molecules in which the carbon has been attached to oxygen. To, uh, carbon atoms have been attached to oxygen atoms. Chemical processes can break those apart again, so that you again can have the oxygen to breathe in. So you have to kind of make that cycle work, um, and uh, that's kind of the 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 main thing. So the other thing you need, for example, in a space station, is you need electric power, um, and uh, so you don't, you know, the, how do you get the electric power? You get it from big solar panels, and there'll be a big, um, uh, big sort of uh, array of solar panels on the on the International Space Station. Solar panels, same thing that you would get in a in a uh, um, uh, solar panels on a house to get um, uh, solar power. Um, the basic idea is that um, uh, when light from the sun, photons from the sun, um, hit these um, uh, these pieces actually of silicon, in um, uh, in um, uh, it's, it's sort of a, a silicon with with extra uh, extra atoms in it. Um, in the um, um, in the solar cell, uh, what's happening is photon comes in. It's got a bunch of energy. It kicks an electron out of um, uh, uh, it kicks an electron out to turn it into an electron that can make an electric current. So the the photon comes in. It makes an electron. Sort of it, it it kicks the electron so that it goes off and makes an electric current. And that's essentially how the electricity is being made. In a in a, a photovoltaic um, solar cell 
thing, and, and that's how the electricity is made on the, on the space station. So, you know, there's some other issues. Um, uh, one might ask the question, if, uh, if one was going to sort of send the space station off or something like the space station off on a six-month voyage to, to Mars or something, how would, it, how would it work? There are new and different issues when you do that. For example, the space station is in low Earth orbit. Um, it's, um, uh, there are, um, it is not a subject to uh, radiation, um, uh, ionizing radiation, things like X-rays, gamma rays, um, other things that um, uh, cause um, uh, cause trouble for human cells and things, as it would be if it was in in deep space far away from the Earth. Um, although, if if there is a um, a solar flare, for example, that can produce a bunch of high energy particles that can cause trouble even for the space station. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q and A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.